Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Yeah. It is about yeah. one minute past the hour of uh, nine o'clock. That means one minute past the wonderful Tim Thorpe. You're on 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. And it's me throwing to Dr. Beach. <laughs> With all the beautiful technology in the world we have, Dr. Beach is uh, in ISO and on Skype. Are you there, Dr. Beach? We've lost Dr. Beach. <laughs> Everything works beautifully before we go on air. <laughs> but he's... Uh, he's, he's and there. I'm Dr. Beach. He's there. I'm Dr. Beach. Oh, you are indeed. How are you? He's got slow and unstable um, internet. I suspect we're going to have to come back to, to Dr. Beach. He's reconnecting with a poor connection. You're on Radio Marinara on 3 Triple R. We do love this isolation stuff, don't we? And how we have to kind of bang it all together. And I'm going to start by thanking the extraordinary uh, Tim. Uh, yet again, like the, the eclectic nature of what Tim brings to air just kind of every week. He, he's smiling. Every week it just makes me kind of go, how does he do it? If I could, you know, if there'd be 10 seconds worth of, of, of that state of quality that we could bring into to marinara with that diversity of music then we'd be happy dr beach have we got you back um can you hear me now we can indeed good morning excellent good morning and fantastic i've got a pretty dodgy connection here because i'm in the wilds of i'm you know i'm in a very remote area which is about <laughs> two kilometers kilometers from this from this from the cbd so, so it's you know so you know you know under, understandably the connection's bad <laughs> you know the wonderful thing about this we're going to probably have to ride with this i reckon all day dr beach but or all morning is that you actually sometimes sound like you're underwater so in that case it's kind of perfect for radio marinara we, fantastic <laughs> we have a um, a very big show we're going to we're going to talk about how sharks and rays smell and of course we're going to do the old joke of course um and that's with dr paula camilleri aish from the Queensland University of Technology. And then a little bit after that, we've got Dr. Wing Chan from the University of Melbourne. And it's about future-proofing coral reefs. They're doing some extraordinary work there, working with the little algae that live inside coral. And then finally, you've been looking into monkeys in South America. I have. I've got a little bit about um, some monkeys which have crossed from um, a long time ago, about 32 million years ago, from Africa to South America, the New World Monkeys. And the old world monkeys, um, yeah, on rafts, we think. Fascinating yeah. paper, which appeared not too long ago. And, um, yeah, one of my favourite reads came out about well, three or four weeks ago in science and just a wonderful idea, that whole concept that we've got, you know, small primates. And there have been a couple of other animals that are doing this, that have done this in the past, but have gone all the way across the Atlantic 
Um, not the Pacific, of course, as we might have mentioned in, in the socials. Um, but yeah, they, they took the shorter route, of course, the, the more passable. Yeah, I was going to say, if they headed off across the Pacific, that'd be a big job, wouldn't it? Go. It would be. It would be a very big job. But yeah, 32 million years ago, so the distance was not so great as it is now because of um, you know continents were in a different space, in a different place oh. then. But hey, don't give don't yeah. give away the entire thing. And, but you've got no, some no, other no, stuff I'm, too. I'm, I'm, over, I'm over prefacing. A few <laughs> Um, that's the, that'll be the final segment, Life's a Beach. But there's also other you, – you've got a couple of other things going on in that segment as well, I think. Oh, yeah, I have got a couple of other things. I can't think yeah. what at the moment. I've got to go ah, back and look at those in the next half hour. <laughs> <laughs> I, I scrapped something together last night. Our ISO planning is going so well. Hey, um, while, yeah. while, we're, while we're talking about planning, have you got the weather? I have got the weather. Um, yeah, what's it looking like today? Today is going to be well. It's going to be well, it's going to be fourteen degrees today. Oh, um, veritably warm. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It has been chilly, hasn't it? Christ, yesterday, God, it was bloody cold. Um, tomorrow is going to be fifteen degrees, fifty percent chance of rain. No rain on Tuesday. No rain on Wednesday. Oh, Wednesday is heating up to about nineteen degrees. Oh, look out. Thursday, look at that, twenty-one degrees on Thursday. A little <laughs> bit of a chance of rain. Friday back down to, well, 19, that's all right. And then Saturday, who knows where we might be next Saturday. We might not be able to, you know, legitimately go to the park en masse. I doubt it, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> going to be 20 degrees, 20 degrees next Saturday and a 17, 70% chance of rain. Um, and today, by the way, there is going to be, yeah, a little bit of a sprinkle perhaps, but not much, a bit of a 10% chance on my um, on the app that I happen to be looking at. It's only about better in Melbourne. Now, are you going to, you gonna, have you got any C's there? Because I, I do recall seeing the forecast yesterday and I do recall seeing the words gale and storm force at some point. Is that still the case? Um, no, I don't have that on my app. I'm sorry. In front of me this morning because I haven't been, I haven't ventured outside the house. <laughs> Not for, for six weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, for six weeks, yeah. I'm, I'm looking pretty manky. <laughs> I'm glad the Skype video is not working at this point. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I was, I was going to do this in my dressing gown, but I thought, yeah, well, I can, can't I? Yeah, why not? <laughs> you don't know what I'm wearing in the studio. Um, so, anyway, the um, have, have you, you haven't got any other interesting uh, marine and uh, coastal news that's come across your desk? Last, well, uh, I, was, I was just having a think the other day because a good friend of mine, Damien Callahan, um, he was on the RV Investigator on a trip, which we, we talked with Damien on air a few uh, yeah. a few times uh, with David Hill and others. Um, they went on a beautiful trip on the Investigator up the north last year, and they were planning on one which is heading down to the Southern Ocean. So, you know, Cape Grim, top left-hand corner of Tassie, and then essentially just heading south straight from that. So it made me think, what's happening with that, with the RV Investigator? And the RV Investigator, of course, is our um, CSIRO flagship research vessel, which is about 97 metres in length. We all love it. It's beautiful. It's stunning. It is a stunning vessel, purpose-built, extraordinary yeah, vessel. Yeah. Anyway, that's all on hold, of course. Um, that's, they were going to go out and, well, they're supposed to be doing lots of cruises now. And I had a look at the map yesterday. And if you looked to see where the RV investigator is, it's tied up in, in Hobart. Hobart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think at the moment the word cruise is just kind of, you know, isn't something that people jump at. <laughs> it's not at all, no. I no, think, no, I think no, Even no. though so it would be a scientific was... investigation kind of cruise, it's still, you know, one of those words you kind of go, nah, look, let's just leave that alone. Yeah, that has, cruises have kind of lost the gloss, haven't they? they? Um, not that they had much gloss for me in the first place, but um, yeah. It's, know, it's, um, in, in, the, in the almost 25 years of, of um, Marinara, 
I cannot think of a time, and I'm going to be corrected if I say this, I know, but I can't think of a time when we've done a story on a cruise ship, which goes to show the level of disinterest of the entire 25 years worth of marinara crew, <laughs> cruise ships, <laughs> given that they're very yeah, large like... boats on the ocean, and you'd think we would look into them, but oh, no. gosh. And you've got to remember at the moment, there's a lot less traffic around the sea, and I keep thinking how much the whales, all the other animals, the invertebrates, everything in the ocean is just going to be loving the peace and quiet. <laughs> they are, indeed, indeed. Well, look, um, we've got um, a very big show, so I'm going to play a little bit of music and we'll come back and we're going to talk about how sharks and ra rays smell. Should we do that joke now and then do it again later? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so how do sharks and rays smell? I don't know. How do sharks and rays smell? I the old joke. It's the old Eben Costello. Oh, he doesn't know it. Oh, oh, I don't know. Terrible is the answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm slapping my head. Yeah. Here's my head. I can hear that. It's, it's beautiful. I couldn't see it, but I could hear it. Dr. Beach, we've got you back in the uh, ISO land. Oh, yeah, you certainly have. Yeah, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing. I just like to check every time now. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's good, good to check. Good no, to check. I've been chopped off. <laughs> and so um, I, I guess, you know, I, I honestly have never known how sharks and rays smell. We did the terrible joke beforehand, uh, yeah, before that badly. joke, and I, which I should back announce. That was Malaisons. Um, um Planton de Vigne, La Vigne, which means something about growing wine. And that song, seriously, that track, electronically done as it is now, is actually from the 1500s. <laughs> it's a traditional French folk song that even though the Quebecois, well, obviously they spoke French, the Quebecois um, melissons have, have updated it somewhat. I suspect in the 1520s they didn't sing it that way. You are on Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Dr. Victoria Camilleri-H studies the question of how do sharks and rays smell? The answer is not terrible, by the way. It's just that's the old joke. She's a fisheries biologist and a postdoctoral researcher at... Oh, sorry, a fish biologist who focuses on elasmobranchs, which is sharks and rays, for those who are um, going, what the hell was that? Um, and is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of... Uh, the Queensland University of Technology in the Institute of Health and Biomedical Innovation. She joins us live online this morning from lovely Bris Vegas. Good morning, Victoria, and welcome to the 3RRR. Good morning, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, tell us, you know, you're in Brisbane, we're in Melbourne. It's like nine degrees here. Is it a beautiful morning up there? Is it sunny? Well, it is sunny, but it starts to, it starts to freeze a bit at night. Well, freeze in terms of Brisbane, of course. I was going to say, what is that? Drops to about 15 or 20? No, we actually dropped to nine last night. Oh, there you go. Oh, it makes me feel a bit better, Dr. Beach. They're, they're almost as cold as we are. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, <laughs> now, look, I think, I think, Victoria, if you were to ask anybody on the street, I guess that from the movies that we've all seen, everyone would pretty much know that sharks have a really acute sense of smell. That's kind of one of the mythologies that's built through, you know, kind of, um, you know, movies and, you know, what I'm interested in is how much do we actually know about the sense of smell in sharks and rays? That's a very good question, and that's the very much the very question that drove me into that PhD research that I completed last year. Um, in fact, um, we don't know much about um, how good they are at smelling. We definitely have some um, results scientifically that proves that they can have they can detect one 
in a billion part of a molecule concentration, which is extremely low. So that's probably what gave them that attribute of being really good at smelling. So can we just dig, just to break that down a bit? One, they could smell one molecule of something in a billion. In your, yes, absolutely. So that's pretty much the, the result that drove um, the common the common example saying that they can smell a drop a drop of blood in a, an Olympic swimming pool. Um, but that's just a result from physiology, just from the how the nose functions. If you like, if you look at as soon as you do how the olfactory organ is organized and the morphology of it or its size, etc., we know far less compared to other fish and even far less compared to other mammals or vertebrates, if you like. And so is that simply because sharks are one of the less, lesser understood of the, the large things that live in the ocean? Is it because, you know, they're, 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 maybe there's the fear thing that people haven't kind of thought to study them? Or is it just people haven't got around to it and now suddenly you know, researchers like yourselves are getting into the more depth about sharks' smell? Well, I guess the research for shark smell started in the, in the U.S. Navy, right, during World War II, and the main driver there was to try to protect when um, when the vessels go um, sinking. So I guess they, they were more interested then to understand how sharks behave towards olfactory information and how it functions more than how it looks like and how it's organised. That's pretty much what drove the research back then. So now we're coming back to, okay, we know from a functional point of view, that they can be really good at smelling specific um, olfactory information, but not all olfactory information. And, um, if you compare it to other mammals, for instance, or humans, and now we have the technology, for instance, to um, look at the number of genes dedicated to, you know, picking up those olfactory cues. And if you just compare the genes in size of the organ, or instead of how good they are at picking up, some information, then you, you realize that humans have roughly 800 genes, yeah. uh, primarily 600. Mice are really, well, I'll be better, they have between uh, 1,400 and 1,700, I think, for that. Uh -huh. Dogs are about 1,000, 1,100, and sharks are down to 60, 50 to 60 genes. Huh. So depending on what you're looking at, so if you look at the size of the brain area that process that information, Sharks are not too bad compared to other mammals, but there are some, some mammals that um, um, overshadow them. But then if you look at the genes, um, then they, they, they don't have that many. So when you assess olfactory abilities in different species, you, it depends kind of what you're looking at. Yeah, and so, so is that, does that mean that there are certain things they can detect incredibly well and then there are some things that they're effectively... I don't know, what's the, the smell equivalent of being blind that, that they just cannot even sense? Is that what that means? Yes, that's exactly what it means. So, well, we don't know yet, to be honest with you, a study came out probably three years ago by John McGann that really changes our view of how human ourselves smell, and it's been underestimated for centuries. Yeah. Um, so the neuroscientist has looked at different uh, parameters or indicators, like I did, but mainly in fish, for myself, and... He was the highlight that depending on what you're looking at, you don't end, end up with the same answer, right? So huh. we don't even nowadays, three years later, don't really know when you assess olfactory ability, what should you account for? Everything, in which way? 
And so I, I got, I've got some real basic questions I've got to ask you. It just, I, I, and this is going to sound apologies for, for someone like yourself who knows this stuff inside out. Um, can it, do sharks actually have nostrils? Like have they got two nostrils or do they have like lots of lots of smelling pits or what, what, what's it look like? Yes, so they have two nostrils. Um, depending on the species, they are placed differently. So some have, have them more eventually, but they are all um, um, tip of the snout, pretty yeah. much. Well, for so hammerhead, it's interesting because obviously it's on the hammer facing forward, just before their eye, which is on the side of the hammer. So, so hang on, they've got those eyes. If you think of a hammerhead, the hammerhead's got the kind of hammer-shaped um, head. They got and they've got eyes on the end of those stalks um, that you know go out to the side. Their their nostrils are next to each one of those eyes. Yeah, so they're facing forward. The eyes are facing laterally. Yeah. They are really at the end of the stalks, like you're saying, and the nostrils are just in front facing forward. Wow. And, and the way they swim um, zigzagging a lot, a study in the U.S. actually showed that the time difference between the two nostrils, when they pick up a smell, and out of a current that bears that smell, uh, that's how they can track it back. Oh, fantastic. By, by swimming in and out of it while the gradient, obviously the concentration increases. So that's, yeah, it's fascinating to study that in those animals, really. Isn't that extraordinary? Now, I've, I've got also another basic question. Sharks yeah. and rays, because you study both sharks and rays, so mantas and stingrays and eagle rays, etc. Um, do they have relatively similar, um, you know, kind of olfactory systems and the, the methods for smelling? So the olfactory organ itself is organized similarly to all the fishes, let's say, to make it a bit more simple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the size of the olfactory organ or the, the number, the way it's organized, if you like, it's folded. It's actually a folded organ. That's why it's called a rosette because it looks like a flower in some species. And, and, and the smell, the different molecules are trapped, if you like, in those foliations. And that's how they pick up specific smells. Wow. Now I've got to ask, how do you, um, how do you actually test the sense of smell of a shark? Do you do you swim up to them and stick something up their nose as a detector? I mean, how on earth do you do that? Yes, uh, that's part of the reason why maybe they are less studied um, animals <laughs> than the rest because it's a bit more tricky to study them um, or to get access to them. So it depends what you're looking at. You can look at the sense of smell just looking at the morphology, so how the olfactory organ is organized out its size or shape. You can look at it functionally using electrophysiology. It's a bit of a big term, but looking at how it functions, basically. Mm -hmm. Or you can look at behavior, how sharks um, respond to some olfactors which are linked to feeding or reproduction, okay? Yeah. So depending on which aspect you're looking at, for morphology, you need an animal which is usually donated by court yep. or caught with a research permit, obviously, to study it, and you you. you you dissect in a lab and you, and you and you process it accordingly. To and, what you and you can basically kind of pull out the pieces and have a good look and work out what's connected to what. That makes sense, yeah? Yes, you can use different uh, microscopy techniques depending on what um, question you want to answer. If you want to look at the density of cells, receptor cells, or how the neurons are connecting to the rest of the brain, or etc., you have different techniques, morphology techniques, anatomically. Then if you want to look at the physiology and how it functions, um, you can work on an anesthetized individual that you keep alive um, and, and, and in, your, in your tank, in your tank system. Uh -huh. So you anesthetize it, put it on its back, and, and you have to have an electro-olfactogram 
oh, to be wow. the big time, but it's the same as for humans being in the water for a shark or um, almost all in the water. And it's basically just a sensor that it senses smell. Yeah, you present with um, odd, different odors and different concentration of odors in, in the water itself. So it, it would flush into the nostrils and, into, and, and get in contact with um, the olfactory organ. And you just, um, with uh, glass pipettes, you just um, record, if you like, the answers of the receptor cells. Yeah, so wow. they, when they pick up something, they, get, they send an electrical signal, and that, that's what you pick up. So you're able to tell by decreasing the concentration in a certain order, you're able to tell when those cell signals stop so what was the minimal threshold for them to pick it up? How extraordinary. And, and you mentioned behaviour as well. And so do we know enough about shark smell to know, is it, in, oh, clearly it's, we kind of know that it's involved in feeding, so it's involved in trying to find food. Is it also involved in mating um, and or other, other forms of communication? Like do they give out signals to each other by smell? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And um, to be answered soon, I think, there is only one researcher that I know on um, the olfactory system, but specifically for the reproduction um, function. Um, so we don't know. We don't know. We know how they pick up uh, feeding cues, so olfactory cues that are used for feeding behavior, and they're really sensitive to that. We know for all the fish, bony fish, is how they, um, how low the threshold is for pheromones. But for sharks, we don't know yet. So hopefully that person, that researcher, will answer that really soon. How extraordinary. So there may be actual communication occurring between sharks using things like pheromones, little kind of signalling chemicals in the water. You know, so it, it, it wouldn't be surprising, you know, like on, on land, um, a sentinel, say a meerkat, you know, people would know about meerkats and if there's danger, they'll stand up and they'll, they'll yell <laughs> in, in meerkat language. But there may be a possibility that sharks are doing that and signalling to other sharks as well. Yes, absolutely. In terms of evolution, it's, it's not surprising. Uh, really uncommon to have um, such a biological function as important as reproduction um, taking a turn in evolution to a point where yeah. it's being eaten, if you like. So, yeah, no, that's, that's to expect. Um, but the, we don't know the number. We don't know how sensitive they are to it or we don't know which type of pheromones they secrete either. So all of that is to discover soon by my colleague at UQ. That is fantastic. Wow, it's been wonderful. We're out of time, Victoria, but that was just um, a wonderful tour through the sense of smell of sharks and rays. Now, what, what I neglected to say is that where this was, we are doing, um, you would have been doing a pint of science. And for those who um, don't know what a pint of science is, a pint of science is a little festival that happens in May all around the country where scientists stand up in pubs with a glass of beer in their hand and do what Victoria and I just did, talk about their science. And so... Of course, in a COVID era, um, we can't do that. But Victoria, you would have been standing up with a glass of beer in your hand in a pub in Brisbane and having that conversation, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Um, I would have probably had a pale ale and instead of my coffee right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, let's just leave the listeners with an image that, that you know we are in a crowded bar. Uh, it's a pub somewhere in Brisbane. It's kind of warm outside. It's one of those long nights. And you've just been explaining, with a pint of science, you've just been explaining... Um, how sharks smell. So, look, thanks so much for joining us this morning on Radio Marinara. No, thank you, Anthony, again, for having me and for, yeah, all those interesting questions because it puts you back into context, obviously, when you get up from your lab and <laughs> and try to answer questions that most um, people would have, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, thank you. We'll keep going and we'd love to hear more in the future. Sounds good. Okay, thank see you. Ya. Bye. Bye.
Victoria Camilleri Aish, um, extraordinary shark researcher. Um, Dr. Beach, you are you are um, listening to some of that in the background. I understand that. Uh, what did you have you heard of the point of science? Um, uh, no, I, Anthony, I, I, I couldn't hear for some reason. Oh, there was some weirdness no. happening, and I, I actually couldn't hear. I could hear a little bit, so I had to go to another device and try and bring you in the device. <laughs> so lots of weirdness happening here. <clears throat> You're but, technologically um, challenged at that end. But, so I, I am have you, have you ever heard of the Pint of Science Festival? The Pint I have of heard of the Pint of Science Festival. It's a wonderful festival, and my goodness, wouldn't it be great if we could be out there in oh, a no. pub having a pint while we're listening to some beautiful science. Now, would have it, the the real depth of the 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 May event is usually next weekend, um, but yeah. um, Catriona and, and some of the and, and I also know some of the other organisers just said, look, we can't do pint of science this year. Um, we've got some wonderful marine and coastal scientists who would have been standing up in pubs having a pint of science and chatting to people, um, and and so that's how we ended up um, getting a chance to interview Victoria and talk about the smelling, the ability of sharks and rays to smell. So do Google, people do Google Pint of Science, and I suspect they're being very successful in planting their pints of science scientists all over different radio shows across Australia. So hopefully that'll be a wonderful outcome for them. They'll get a new and different audience. Yeah, you're on Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Hopefully we'll start that all over again. Dr Beach, how are you? Um, I'm, I'm well. <laughs> But there's a gremlin in the in the in the system somewhere. Kent's, Kent and I yeah. are scratching our heads uh, about that one. Anyway, here we are. You're on Radio Marinara on Three Triple R. It is gosh, it's about 25 minutes to nine. Now, Dr. Wing Wing Chan is, as I said, a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne, and and works in collaboration um, or with uh, the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences. And about a month ago, we had a fascinating conversation with Wing about her research, and we got just we got to the exciting parts about well, the whole thing was exciting, but we got specifically into some real nitty gritties about how they're future proofing corals. And it turns out, Dr. Wing Chan is also a pint of science personality as well. Good morning, Wing. Welcome back to Radio Marinara. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me again. No worries. Now, look, you were going to be doing pint of science as well. I just found that out. I didn't realise that. Is this thing that all young scientists do these days? Um, it's encouraged to. I mean, communication is a very important thing, part of our job. And, and everybody wants to know about what we're doing as well. So uh, highly encouraged any you know, young scientists to give it a go and see if we can talk out loud in the public. Absolutely. Fantastic. So anyway, last month we were talking about the little algae that live inside coral um, called symbionts um, that basically help coral to grow. I know I'm, that's a very non-scientific version of it, Wing. But, um, and, and, and when, when with climate change and coral bleaching, we're seeing the symbionts, the little algae, basically being kicked out of the coral and, and then we end up with coral bleaching. And, and your work and the work of your colleagues is, is trying to kind of future-proof corals for this rising sea temperature. So how do you actually test this in a lab? What do you do with the corals? So there are different steps. But first of all, these uh, microalgae that live inside the coral, they provide a lot of energy to the coral. So they are critically important to the coral. And the idea what we're trying to do is um, can we take these microalgae and get them to evolve and adapt to warmer temperatures first 
and then introduce itself back into the caller, and then in turn help the caller to adapt to warmer climate. So are you kind of you kind of training them, or, or, or are you trying to select the ones? We're kind of training them, huh. pretty much. So uh, the reason why we want to work with this microalgae is because uh, for caller, even the fast-growing one, it takes at least uh, three to seven years to get to reproductive maturity. So it takes a long time to get to your next generation. So for slower-growing species, it might take longer time for evolution to respond. These algae, however, they go through generations in a matter of days, like three days up to 70 to 80 days per generation. So potentially, they can be in your work train and evolve to warmer temperature faster and then we take this benefit and then give it back to the color and in turn help the color to adapt to warmer temperature. How extraordinary. And so when you say give it back to them, do you mean you what kind of inject it in or what, what do you like do you, you could put the, the, the surviving ones in or you just put it in the tank with them and they suck them in themselves? Pretty much it's option two. So first of all, we take the algae out of the color and then we evolve them in isolation in the lab. Uh, it's easier to do so with the algae by itself. And also, of course, with about four years now, we gradually put them through higher temperature um, then let them sit at the, I think the highest temperature is 31 degrees that we get them to adapt to, which is quite warm. Um, then we know that they are more resilient because when we compare that with the unevolved population, so the one that's never been trained to high temperature, these ones that have been evolved, they have better performance at higher temperature. And this so is in the something. lab? This is in the lab? Yes, yep. in the yep. lab, exactly. So something has been worked in this uh, training. And then to introduce, so that's the first step. And then in the second step, then we have to prove that we can actually introduce it back into the color. And this pretty much is what you say. We just put this in the, in the tank, for example. Uh, so the color naturally uptake uh, these microalgae from the environments, from the water column, from the sediment. They would naturally take them up. And so, um, well, how do we... I'm intrigued because if they're, they're basically the size of small food particles, so why do they just not eat them? When they take them up, how do they kind of end up, instead of being in their gut, they end up inside the, the, you know, the tips of the coral? Uh, that's a good, very good question. So they're about 10 microns uh, in, on average, so depending on microns. the distance. That's like the, a human hair. No, it's a tenth, <laughs> a tenth of a human hair? What's the thickness of the human hair? So I can't tiny. answer that question. But uh, <laughs> roughly 10 microns, uh, depending on the species and the genera. Yeah. Are very tiny. Um, there is a recognition system between the uh, algae and the mic. Uh, sorry, and the collar. Um, we don't know exactly what is the recognition system. Sometimes they do eat them. And oh. Sometimes they don't eat them. So. Huh. And so, and so are these little kind of, are they dinoflagellates, little things with the kind of, you know, flapping little kind of um, flagella, little swim tails, or are they a different kind of microalgae? Uh, it is a type of dinoflagellate. Huh. Um, so so it's the same thing. Yeah, when we talk about handful, uh, elbow bloom is dinoflagellate. It's the same phylum. Yeah. Uh, but this is a different family. It's a specific family called Symbiogeneaceae that... Uh, specialised with a uh, So that's extraordinary, isn't it? That, that like we know enough about to know how they, they kind of work together to, to basically um, accelerate the growth of coral. Um, in, in effect, they're basically just being having that relationship. But 
but we don't know how they get inside the coral. I mean, we know they get in and out, but that's remarkable that we don't know how they get inside. So then do you take the ones that have survived well in the lab that you've basically trained up for warmer water and then do you transplant them into the ocean and see how they survive? Uh, yep, so um, going back to your question, we do know the corals picked up the, the, the uh, microalgae um, for the tentacles yep. and then for the endobolies. Sometimes they eat them, sometimes they don't. Um, a lot more research uh, needs to be done on this recognition area. And uh, with the, the type of what we're doing, we've done the lab work, so we have looked at evolving the algae and then putting it back into coral larvae in the lab. And then we look at how these coral larvae perform uh, under warmer temperature. Yeah. So that is kind of like the second step after we evolve them is the first step. Second step is to put them back to uh, coral larvae, see yep. if they pick them up first, because they might not like them. That would be a big problem. Of but uh, thankfully they do. <laughs> <laughs> in our uh, recent uh, in our recent work, we know that uh, the coral larvae do pick them up again. Thank goodness, because, yeah, otherwise, what's the point if they don't? Yep, yep, good point. We will figure out why, if that's the case. That science happens all the time. Yeah, true. That's not working. It's <laughs> 99% of the time. Um, yeah, so then um, we look at the performance of the larvae, and at, with, at least we know some of the microalgae actually help with the uh, bleaching tolerance of the larvae. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we put the larvae in higher temperature. Now some of them with this uh, evolved strain of microalgae, they actually perform better. So that's uh, really promising. Wow. So, so, I mean, I know this is going to sound like a kind of way out there question, but uh, are we... Can you imagine a time where you can scale this up and, and, and start to actually rehabilitate or restore even, you know, perhaps the small-scale reef around an island that's been really badly bleached? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's always the biggest question in restoration work. It's like how do you translate the thing that you do in the laboratory into larger-scale restoration? Um, the one great potential about these microalgae is... Uh, well, what we hope to be able to achieve is to um, develop these thermally resilient microalgae and just introduce it to the reef to help those that have been uh, through bleaching or those that we know is likely to bleach based on uh, seawater temperature forecast. Um, they are easier than growing corals individually mm -hmm. and then put them out in the reef because um, with the algae, if you can just pretty much chuck it in the reef and it's the coral would then uh, pick them up, that is uh, potentially have a larger scale uh, restoration impact than doing the coral one by one. Wow, wow. But that's I, the idea. We'll need many years to prove that. Yeah, yeah, no, but the, 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 that's the direction it's going. And I've I, I got to say, I can't help but think as well that to some extent, I, I suspect you'd rather not have this job like in a way it sounds like you know what we're doing is trying to build these thermally resilient corals so we can replace you know things like the great barrier reef in the future um and and if everyone just cut the carbon emissions right down and we started to change the way that we live and work and and and, and started to kind of flatten the curve on climate change there's a good chance that would do you out of a job now I, you know maybe that's a bad thing or a good thing um do you ever sometimes feel like... I'm happy to be like our job for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was going to ask that's a hard question. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if we got to flatten that curve, 
um, which is the CO2 curve, uh, there's a high likelihood that this work that you guys have done would still be really important because there's still quite a lot of temperature soaking it, being soaked up in the ocean. So it'll take a while for that to cool down. Um, but that might actually long-term be better for the reef as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, I'm happy, absolutely happy to be our job for that purpose. <laughs> and uh, even if we stop carbon emission today, uh, the temperature, the increase in ocean temperature is not going to stop straight away. There's a very long delayed effect. So the type of work that we're doing, we still need that. However, we would not be as desperate, you know, any as desperate a situation as we are in now. Um, it's, um, I, I don't want to end on that somewhat depressing point, but it, it, it is true and I think it's to make sure that, um, that that's why we're spending our time flattening the CO2 curve and I think it's really important. Thank you so much. I'd love to check in, I don't know, next year sometime to see how those funds that are being planted and how they're growing. Would you come back and tell us the next round of results? Well, that happy to be there. Yeah, wonderful. Hey, thanks so much, Wing, and um, have a lovely Sunday. Thanks, Mike. Dr. Wing Chan from the University of Melbourne. It's remarkable stuff, isn't it, Dr. Beach, what they're doing? It certainly is. Um, and, yeah, to uh, be able to take those dinoflagellates out of the corals, warm them up and select the ones which are, um, you know, probably going to cope with increased temperature better, it's just get them back in there. It's... And that point about they don't know they don't know how they get in yet. You know, why, why don't they just feed on them? That's the weird thing. There's all going to there be all sorts of receptors and stuff, specific lock and key mechanisms. That's just fascinating from a from a cell biology point of view as well. Dr. Beach, now, uh, right? yeah. indeed, life is a beach. What's been happening life on your beach? beach? Well, what's been happening on my beach? I've been getting through the literature while I've been here at home, having a look at some papers and one which popped up in the esteemed journal Science a couple of weeks ago now. This appeared on April the 10th. Um, is about monkeys crossing large ocean masses. Now, some of us might have heard about you know, South America, but we have monkeys. We have the so-called New World monkeys in South America, and we have the Old World, which is the Africas. We have Old World monkeys. And it was a bit of a puzzle up until the 1980s how we got dispersal of, um, of monkeys across from, well, there were fossils of monkeys which were found in Africa and there were also fossils of monkeys which were found in South America and all those, and there are monkeys still there. But how did they make that transition? How did they get there? How did those monkeys in South America get there? And, and we, we knew that they, and, we, we, and so we knew they didn't, we knew they kind of came from a common source, didn't we? It wasn't like monkeys evolved separately in two places. Exactly, Anthony. Yeah, so the so-called New World monkeys, people wondering how did they get there? And we know that humans first arrived in got to South America, got to the Americas about 12,000, 13,000 years ago, and that was through coastal migration. But we have evidence that the monkeys, the fossils of monkeys in, um, in South America go back like 30 million years. So how did they get there? But then it's oh. stopped before that. So before 30 point years ago, there were no fossils of monkeys in the, in, um, the Americas. So people are wondering how did they get there? And it was only in the 1980s that we had um, malaria killer evidence so um which kind of convinced people that well there must be some other way that they got there and the only way that they could have got there was across the ocean now there's been a lot of skepticism about that but people have finally accepted it and in this paper which has just appeared in science there's another group of monkeys uh for which we have evidence now that this in fact happened huh. and it's a bit hard in, oh. trying to think well you know how to 
how can you possibly get monkeys swimming that distance? Um, if we go back about 30 million years ago, the distance between those two continents, so if you cross the Atlantic going from, say, the west coast of Africa and land on the east coast of South America, it would be around... This doesn't sound... Hang on a minute, Dr. Like Beach. too far, actually. It's about... Nevertheless, that's a we just lost the I'm crucial. There, we just lost the crucial statistic. <laughs> Hanging on every word, and then it was about, and we lost it. Have we got you back, Doctor Birch? Ah, the signal died oh. out. That perfectly crucial oh, moment. No. It's, it's, I'm breaking up. You're breaking up. This is very. This is very challenging, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the whole COVID thing <laughs> is very challenging. Tell us again what that 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 statistic was. That were that the, the the crucial piece. The crucial piece is that the distance back then would have been about one thousand kilometres. And wow. how do you? And the only explanation we can come up with now, and this is you can see this in different you know, different lines of evidence, is that monkeys crossed on rafts of vegetation. Now, if people are thinking, well, how can you get rafts of vegetation crossing that? distance there are videos that you can see if you go online of these huge rafts of vegetation going up the panama canal yeah. and if they stayed long enough if the monkeys stayed long enough on those rafts of vegetation then they could possibly have made it and in fact there's no other conclusion that we can reach from the fossil evidence that we now have of this small group of monkeys which is um they're a little bit like marmosets um they no longer exist in south america they've died out but we have fossil evidence now that they are there that they were there um, between around 30 and 35 million years ago on um, in Peru. Um, and the only previous evidence of the existence of these monkeys um, is that, well, they, they live now in northern Africa, in Egypt. And so having found fossils, this guy, Seaford, who is at the University in California, having found these fossils in this bed in Peru, and the fact the fossils that he found were just molars with teeth, and molars can be very distinctive. Teeth can be very distinctive in identifying a particular group of any kind of animal, and in particular primates and in particular monkeys. Um, so the only conclusion that can be reached from this now is that we had rafts of vegetation, which these small marmosets, uh, marmoset-like monkeys, were on the rafts of vegetation. There could have been um, trees there which were fruiting, and if they are small animals, then that's just that the amount of vegetation which is on that raft, if you like, so these are not rafts that they've built, but actually just chunks of the um, near like, shore yeah. sort of coast, which have broken off in a huge tropical storm and then been pushed across in the currents, and the currents would have been going in that direction. Um, so from the west coast of from the yeah from the west coast of africa over to the east coast i was going to ask that if it is actually a prevailing currents but you, you're right there are ones that circulate that direction aren't there yeah that's right um so yeah that's extraordinary so but it's so hang on <laughs> just so hang on like you can just see these little marmoset like things sitting in these you know here we are whatever big storm and all of a sudden oh oh whoops we're surrounded by ocean and then we hit the landmass. that that that's journey right. of a thousand kilometers that would have taken Month, months. I mean, it wouldn't be. One would imagine, yeah. So, you know, you presumably there were like small trees on there, shrubs yeah, which yeah. were fruiting at the time, which would keep them going. Um, and there would have, you would imagine, there would have had to have been at least a couple of different individuals there, so that you could have a breeding group when they got to the yeah, other yeah. side. And, and, and do they think that all New World monkeys descended from these one little kind of group of 
proto marmosets? Um, they're not sure. No, they, they, they reckon uh-huh. that there was another migration as well, and that the whole lot sort of so all the monkeys, all the New World monkeys, arrived there in that fashion at around thirty or thirty-five million years ago. And there's also evidence that there's a group of rodents which have arrived in South America by that means as well from Africa. Yeah, fascinating story. And just before we go, speaking of storms... you got about 30 seconds. Fun. About 30 seconds, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I won't go to that because I get broken up. But um, a fascinating story, Anne. That and, is um, remarkable. I just, I, I honestly never thought about the fact that the new world monkeys had got to have come from somewhere. Um, and and I, wow, what a remarkable yeah. piece of scientific detective work. That's right, yeah. Crossing the Atlantic on rafts of vegetation storms around 50 million years ago and then those ancestors get there and then that gives rise to yeah a whole bunch of different other monkeys in the new world i just think that wow fantastic we've got the theme playing underneath us as we as we see out the show dr beach the doctors are lining up in fact the doctors are in every studio i can see instead of um you know kind of all congregating in one studio iso determines that they're all in different studios oh there we go everything's jumping in so thanks to our guests this morning. Thank you so much to um, Dr. Victoria Camilleri-Ash and Dr. Wing Chan and, of course, uh, Dr. Beach, for you persisting through the Skype chaos. I shall. <laughs> all right. Okay, well, um, next week there'll be all kinds of wonderful things and I forgot, I haven't got my list here, but I know Bronze in with their fantastic collection of stuff and um, we'll see you later. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.